Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hey, good afternoon all. Dr. Rob Dixon here with Dr. Casey Patrick and Kevin Crocker on the boards with another MCHD paramedic podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Jerry Snow, and Jerry is a colleague of ours uh, that we train with out in Indiana who's now medical toxicologist at Banner University out in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're here to talk today about all things snake bite. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Rob. Hey, Jerry. So let's uh, let's start a little bit, I guess, uh, you know, for our paramedics listening out there, let's start with some of the basics. I know that from the standpoint of uh, venomous snakes, you guys have a little different uh, makeup there in Arizona than we do here in southeast Texas. But give us a breakdown of how um, kind of you, you approach the most common venomous snakes, um, you know, and a little bit about the difference between, between Arizona and uh, desert there and the swamp here. Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, obviously – Arizona and Texas both have no shortage shortage of uh, venomous snakes from that standpoint. There, there are over 13 uh, species here of uh, rattlesnakes in Arizona. Um, there's some overlap, obviously, like the Western Diamondback, the Mojave rattlesnake, um, tiger rattlesnake, and sidewinder. So a, a good variety of different um, rattlesnakes here in Arizona. Um, one other thing before I forget that I'll mention, too, is don't forget about the snake enthusiasts out there, guys. So a lot of people will have snakes that are not native to the United States, which can pose a particular problem. I mean, it's kind of off topic, but just also be aware that every once in a while, um, you know, you will get a call um, on a snake that's not native to the United States, but we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Um, Texas, as you mentioned, has a, a number of snakes that we, we don't have here, uh, a couple which are not rattlesnakes, including like the copperhead and the cotton mouth, obviously, but still has the Western Diamondback, um, the Western rattlesnake, the Mojave, the timber rattlesnake. So there's definitely a, a wide variety of rattlesnakes, plenty available there in Texas as well. And Texas definitely gets a, a large number of inviminations every year. I know the, the, the poison centers there um, get numerous calls um, every year when it comes to a snake invimination. Yeah, I mean, from our standpoint, in the emergency department here, I think we see uh, majority copperhead, probably 90, 95% right, plus, right. and anecdotally, mm-hmm. uh, another 2 or 3% uh, water moccasin, and then a fairly rare, rare rattlesnake here. I had a, a Texas coral uh, several years ago, so. Uh, oh, yeah, that's well, pretty rare. Well, being, yeah. a big, being a big baby about snakes and, and terrified and kind of a coward about snakes, uh, the biggest question I have, Jerry, is how do I identify which ones are mean and nasty and stay away from them? Sure, absolutely. So let me start by saying this, that um, I wouldn't recommend folks ever try to handle or capture a snake and attempt to identify it. Um, and please never bring the snake uh, alive to the healthcare facility because this is pretty you, much happening. Would you like to repeat that, doctor? <laughs> I think that that bears repeating as well. Right. <laughs> never transport a live snake to a healthcare facility to help with identification. Um, as I said, we we definitely see that on occasion, and it always freaks people out. But we'll get back to that in our snake telling story later. Um, with that being said, um, typically the crelated snakes can be identified by having a triangular shaped head. Um, the pit vipers obviously have the pits on, on each side of their head as well. You can look for vertically elliptical pupils as well as uh, front mobile fangs. 
from that standpoint. Uh, keep in mind that rattlesnakes, they won't always have a rattle. Um, it could have been lost or it may not have yet developed. So if something looks like a rattlesnake, but you don't see or hear a rattle, that does not mean it's not a rattlesnake. And um, also, uh, contrary to what some people believe, rattlesnakes will not always rattle prior to biting as well. So important to keep in mind. Um, if you're a purist, you can't actually identify um, a marker of identification. It can also be used looking at the undersurface, uh, looking at the scales of the pit vipers. They have a single roll of plates of, of scales. That would, that that would uh, assume that we would pick it up. Right, which I'm not <laughs> recommending. I'm just telling you, like a for the purest, for the herpetologists, for the, for the, for the purest uh, of you snake people out there. I'm not, right. I'm not checking out like snakes, snakes, and I'm not uh, checking out snakes' anal plates, so we can uh, right. We can the move double, on. The double row is found on the non-venomous species. For those that care, again, not not endorsing the snake handling. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind too that we, you know, you will see a number of folks that are inveminated even after killing and decapitating a snake because just handling the head of the snake, they still have re in, re reflexes that are still intact. And we've seen inveminations 20, 30 minutes out, even after a snake's been decapitated. So don't think because its head's been cut off that it still can't inveminate you because it is well reported. And I've even had a case this year where a gentleman um, was inveminated just I, by a snake head. I saw one on Twitter yesterday, actually. No, somebody, I'm truly. Somebody I'm got truly, the shovel treatment and then got got yeah, that ten minutes. I'm truly later. terrified now, guys. Let it let it lie. Okay, <laughs> I will I will I will do that. And that that kind of dovetails into our next question: is what you know? What's your advice for our medics and our other listeners out there in the field on how they how do they approach these? What are, what are the important uh, uh, clinical priorities here in these envenomations or snake bites we don't know their envenomations sure. yet well i think most importantly rob it's probably important to note there's there's no first date or specific field treatment that has really been shown to have a positive outcome um, for patients after envenomation so you know pre-hospital care should focus on you know keeping the patient calm immobilizing that extremity um, and just getting them to care um, in a rapid fashion from that standpoint. This is not kind of a stay and play uh, type of scenario from that standpoint. But it's also important to realize too that, you know, a small number of these patients can develop systemic symptoms too, and even have anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid reactions, um, and can even have cardiovascular collapse. So, you know, in the event that the patient is crashing, EMS should definitely, you know, put an IV in these folks, um, give them back-to-back -back fluid boluses, and even, uh, potentially have to use epinephrine um, as they would for anaphylaxis okay. um, in the field, especially if they're persistently hypotension. And it's, it's always a good idea to keep the patient MPO as well. One other thing that they need to be prepared for, especially in anybody bitten in the head or neck region at all, and this can even apply to people bitten in the extremities, the swelling can really be rapid and progressive. And so they need to be ready to manage that patient's airway. Um, we've definitely had people that are handling snakes and get bit in the lip, the tongue, the wow. face, or the neck. And like I said, you, you, it can be pretty dramatic, the, the rate of swelling um, and how early some of these people could potentially lose their airways. So some of the things, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of voodoo medicine that goes along with, with snake bites. And I'm going to hit a couple rapid fire here for you, Jerry, and you can give me thumbs up or thumbs down. How about uh, how about the uh, ever popular venom extractor? My my, uh, my son my son is a uh, <laughs> negative. Yeah, I, negative. Is, did, did Will is well, that a product my, placement from Will? Yeah, my my ten year old is is a budding herpetologist, and he loves nature videos. And one of his YouTube nature favorites, who I also kind of like myself, 
had uh, a venom extractor on the show a couple weeks ago, and I had to tell Will that he's trying to sell a product there and don't don't suck the venom out because you can't. So, right, we had a I went uh, we hiked the Grand Canyon this past fall, uh, me and a large group of folks, and one of the guys was like, "I got my snake bite kit," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's uh, we're not going to use that." <laughs> like, no one no one to- here saw true grit. Come on. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no sucking the poison out with your mouth or any type of device. Those, those have never been shown to be of any benefit in patients. So you mentioned, you mentioned epi in cases of cardiovascular collapse. What about, um, you know, we see sometimes in these protocols, Benadryl, um, possibly even Pepsid. I mean, these aren't without allergic reaction symptoms. These aren't allergic in nature or, you know, anaphylactoid in nature, unless you see those symptoms, correct? We shouldn't be giving those um, in its yeah, know, standard that, setting or standard protocol uh, setting, correct? Right. I wouldn't be universally given those. If a patient has urticaria, they're wheezing with swelling and hypotensive, I think those would be regional therapies. But again, fluids and epinephrine are probably the most important interventions there from that standpoint. What's your What's your take on ice and elevation? I know we've gotten some pushback uh, uh, from from different folks and different sources on on ice and elevation. How do you feel about those two, Jerry? Yeah, I think immobilizing the extremity, and we, especially once they're in hospital, we, we do elevate the extremities uh, from that standpoint, but we put no heat, we do not use cold, we don't put cold packs or ice um, on these areas ever. Okay, that's uh, that's that's some of the, the main ones there. Um, yeah, a, a couple of things that I would mention, Casey, is obviously, you know, no, no cutting, no incising of, of the bite, please. <laughs> it kind of goes along with the, the suction, I guess. And the other issue that comes up, um, is tourniquets. Like, should these patients have tourniquets? And they should not. Um, there's been a, you know, a big guideline put out on curlitid inviminations in North America. And while you will read about pressure immobilization in, say, for instance, Australian snake bites, there's, there's no place for that really in curlitid bites in North America. So no use of tourniquets, no, you know, pressure um, immobilization or anything from that standpoint. Uh, another issue that will come up again later, um, no use of electric shock of any kind, including stun gun. This is something that has been done uh, in the past. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. Oh, oh, you <laughs> Now I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Oh, uh, there's a little foreshadowing, I think is what we call that. Oh, yes, sir. And then, again, you know, there's no reason to waste any time uh, or take any risks trying to kill, bag, or bring in an offending snake. Pretty much everybody has a smartphone now. And so from a distance, if you got a decent picture of the snake a person could you know a person that knows snakes very well could probably identify it so don't bother trying to again especially bring in a live snake um and again i don't think it's worth the risk of getting someone else bit or getting yourself bit again um you know trying to you know handle the snake or capture it or kill it in any way so most of our texas uh east texas snakes jerry like you mentioned already are crotalids um you know the in-hospital treatment for these folks, depending, is uh, Crofab now. Tell us a little bit about uh, just kind of a, you know, for the pre-hospital folks out there, just a, a little bullet point detail kind of overview on, on Crofab and its role. Sure. So, you know, Crofab's been around since uh, 2002. That's when it was FDA approved, and, it, and its predecessor was the Wyeth polyvalent antivenom. So, Crofab is just an antibody fragment. And so, the polyvalent antivenin was the whole IgG antibody. So it was significantly more allergenic and it was made from horse serum. So we saw significantly more allergic reactions to it and so forth. So 
Crofab is actually made from sheep serum. Um, and it, it's been specifically formulated to treat um, crolatid inviminations. And so what they do is, is they, they take venom from the eastern and western diamondback, as well as the cottonmouth and the Mojave rattlesnake. They inoculate sheep with it. Then they collect that serum, which contains these antibodies. They produce the fragments. And that, that portion is what, when it, it's administered to the patient, these antibodies bind and they neutralize the venom. And that's kind of really how it works. And what we're looking for when these patients present, um, keep in mind, if you're super lucky, about 25% of the time, you'll get a dry bite. Um, unfortunately, 75% of the time, it's not a dry bite. And so in these patients that have progressive worsening of swelling, um, we also always check uh, for coagulopathy as well as thrombocytopenia, which can be profound. Like people will have like immeasurable uh, fibrinogen, they'll have thrombocytopenia into the less than 10,000 sometimes, so really significant coagulopathy as well as thrombocytopenia. And then snakes like the Mojave rattlesnake can also produce neurotoxicity where you can see muscular fasciculations and weakness. And then obviously, like I mentioned earlier, those patients that have like hemodynamic compromise and hypotension and all that systemic symptoms like that, those would all be indications um, for getting CROFAB actually. Um, one other point that I think it's important to uh, make from an EMS standpoint would be that the thing that they could do pre-hospital would definitely be ask the patients about any history of food allergies or asthma or other allergic conditions and so forth. Ask them, have they ever been inviminated before and have they ever actually had the anti-venom um, and did they have any type of reaction to it? Because that's kind of important to know um, once they present to the hospital and so forth. Um, one other thing that we get questions about too is, is you know, concerning, you know, the swelling and tissue necrosis. It's important to note that the Anti-venom will halt and definitely slow or stop swelling or tissue necrosis, but it will not reverse it. So it's not like these people come in, they're really swelling, having a lot of pain, they've got some necrosis, they get anti-venom and it like reverses because that is not the case. What's, what's the big downside? I'm leading you here a little bit, but what, what's the, one of the major considerations with CROFAB when we talk about its use and continued use in these, in these patients? Sure. So I think the thing that, you know, probably comes most into to a provider's mind is probably, you know, the risk of having an allergic reaction to CROFAB. Uh, from a layperson standpoint, it's probably the cost because um, CROFAB essentially, as you can imagine, is kind of an orphan drug. You don't have like this widespread use. It's not like it's a statin and every other person in the United States is on it. Um, so the cost of CROFAB can be 10 to $20,000 of vial and your typical starting dose is four to six vials. And then, obviously, if you don't get control of the coagulopathy or the swelling, um, you would administer another four to six vials. Um, I think, on average, our typical person here, after rattlesnake invimination, gets about 12 vials. So, I mean, that person could easily have a $120,000 bill just from the CROFAB itself. I think I just won't pick up the snake. And uh, Kevin, can you have our insurance check to make sure that this very expensive drug is covered? Oh, my God. Watch, watch out when you're gardening. That's sir. right. Well, that's a good thing I don't garden. So, Jerry, that brings yeah. us to, to kind of wrap it up. We'd like you to talk about now your craziest snake bite story. You know, Rob, I've got a couple I'll share with you. I think I think one of my favorites, you know, is right out of the medical literature, and it's something that that Brent Furby actually had in one of his presentations going back to IU. 
um, in his snake bite lecture, which you always had to appreciate. This was a actually a case report out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine in the early 1990s, and it actually happened right here in Arizona. I believe it was actually uh, the group out of Tucson that published it. Um, but it goes a little something like this. There was a 28-year-old guy who was, of course, handling his pet rattlesnake, and he was bitten near his upper lip. Well, um, this wasn't something new to him. Uh, this was actually his 14th invimination. And unfortunately, he had actually had anaphylactic shock from the antivenom. Remember, this is from the, uh, the Wyeth polyvalent. So this is prior to Crofab. So this was not an uncommon um, situation because it was so much more allergenic. Well, so him and a neighbor had read an article in a magazine, an outdoor magazine, that said you could use this electric shock treatment, you know, to neutralize the venom. So they had decided that if this ever happened to him again, <laughs> they were going to use electric shock therapy. So they clipped a small wire to his upper lip, hooked him up to the car, oh, started the engine, revved it up to several thousand RPM, and he promptly lost consciousness and became incontinent of stool. Well, yeah. And that's, that's kind of how EMS found him. Um. He was transported and actually did have a good outcome. He did get anti-venom. <laughs> um, he was pre-treated with some steroids as well as some antihistamines. Um, and I believe may even have gotten um, um, other therapies as well. But actually, he got many vials, I think upwards of 25, 30 vials of anti-venom um, and did require some, some cosmetic work there to his upper lip. I'm not sure if that was from the snake or the shock. Um, but actually, thankfully, he did have a very, very good outcome. Um, so that's, that's one of my favorites. And then I can share one other one with you that was, uh, actually very widespread in the media as well, um, here in the last year that involved the case that, that we had here. And it was a gentleman who also had been bitten, um, uh, wasn't his first time around, but, uh, he and his son actually presented to the hospital at an outside hospital where he was rapidly intubated and actually transferred to us was hypotensive. So he was handling the snake, um, showing, demonstrating to his children the proper way to handle a snake and decided that he was going to take the snake and they were going to cook it and eat it. Mind you, this is like at like three in the morning. Um, so they rode in a vehicle uh, to a family member's house, him holding the snake. They go up to like, you know, go up to like knock on the door or whatever. And I guess he went to knock and like, couldn't hold his grip or you know the, it slipped so anyway it, it popped him a couple times in the uh the right side of his face and then so then they uh got back in the car he's still holding the snake they drive to a local uh small community hospital come in through the ambulance bay still holding the snake still alive um and i mean at this point i mean his face and neck are swelling you know tremendously and uh so they actually, you know, they get the snake away from him, but he becomes increasingly agitated because I assume that he's having more and more difficulty breathing. So um, this is another gentleman that actually had a, a very good outcome, thankfully, was transferred to us, got um, a lot of, lot of anti-venom, and um, was intubated for, I think, the better part of a week, if I recall correctly, um, but actually did quite well. But he was almost unrecognizable. Uh, he was so badly swollen in the, in the face and neck. Um, had a large hematoma um, that developed as well. And uh, I think the most interesting part of that is his son like brought in all these pictures of him like laying on the ground holding the snake, him taking pictures with other folks and family members while he was holding the snake. 
apparently, you know, everything's a good time till it goes south. Nothing, oh. nothing good, nothing good happens, boys. After midnight, I'm just saying. All for a, all for a midnight Mom, snack, man. Snake sandwich. Can't you, can't you just go to White Castle anymore, for God's sake? Right, Mama was always right. That's right. What happened to the snake? Yeah, that's what we're dying to oh, know. Listeners the, the, want to know un, that. Un, unfortunately, uh, the snake uh, was put down oh. by, I believe, security um, at the outside hospital. <laughs> Shot multiple times. I don't know. I think they put it in like a trash can or something. Like I think when he came in holding it, they had to kind of convince him to like throw it into something to maintain it. Of course, you can imagine like the nurses and other, you know, the techs and the physician's response when he like walked in through the ambulance yeah. bay. I would have had a heart this, attack, Jerry. And you would have had to give up. the benzodiazepines to me. Right. And I mean, as you can imagine what the guy looked like too, as he was <laughs> so swollen holding this snake and. All right, and, so and, that, and bring, that I, brings up a, a good thing for uh, our one of our uh, future segments, right, is we, we just have to figure out the technology of it. Andy and Kevin will figure it out, and we'll have a call-in show, and you can all share your weirdest MS stories. Uh, we may have to have a lot of bleeping and things like that, Kevin. Can we do that? Can we bleep? We can talk about it. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, this was uh, super interesting. I now know that I will not connect myself to the car battery the next time that I'm bitten by a venomous snake. I think I feel like I'm safer now thanks to this got discussion. Take, take yeah. that out of the protocol case. Yeah, I got to okay. yeah, my, right. my, my home care. Right. I don't want to shock my kids yeah. or, okay. you know, anyhow. Uh, thank you guys, everybody out there for listening as always. Thank Kevin on the board. Uh, Rob, Jerry, you guys have a good rest of the afternoon and we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, fellas. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.